Nathan Radke, and with me today, in person, in the bunker, is of course nobody at all, because this is being recorded in May of 2020. Uh, so I'm just rattling around this old cement cube all by myself. However, joining remotely through the magic of technology, we have doctors Lee Kunla Hi. and Elena Papianis. Hello again. I'm super excited today for a couple reasons. One, normally... Uh, when we're doing one of these conspiracy theories or we're doing something about uh, cryptids, I'm not normally rooting for one thing or the other. Like, I just want to know what the truth is or get as close to the truth as I can. But for this episode, like, I've got, I've got money in the pot. I've got stakes in the game. I really want this to be true. You have some kind of weird history with the Loch Ness or, or at least some, some abiding fascination because it's come up it's come up in conversation with you uh, more than I would have expected. Yeah, I think it's because I feel this loss, this sense of loss and sadness that dinosaurs don't exist anymore. Mm. Now, some of that has been sort of assuaged when I found out that birds are actually dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah. So now when I, when I see a bird and I can say to the person beside me, hey, that's a dinosaur, and it makes me feel a little better. Uh, but if the Loch Ness Monster is real... Like, maybe there's hope that something else has survived. And maybe that, that sense of loss I have, that we lost all these dinosaurs, like, maybe that will be mitigated somewhat. So suddenly, I feel a little pre-disappointed for you, Nathan. Oh, no. <laughs> that, that doesn't bode well. No, all right, well, okay. But as much as I want this to be true, one of the things that we've always done is we've always gone where the premise is and the evidence leads us. So, yeah, are you sure? Are you sure you want to go through with this, Nathan? Let's do it. Let's go through. Okay. It. Okay. So, where do you stand, though, Lee, on this? Do you have any opinions, any feelings, one or the other? I've been humbled by my research into Bigfoot, and mm -hmm. so I didn't like with Bigfoot. I didn't really put much, you know, I didn't really have a strong opinion one way or the other. But most likely, I thought no. Uh, okay. The whole Bigfoot stuff made me a more flexible and I'm more open to the possibility. Right. But I don't know enough to be able to really have an opinion at this point. So I'm hoping you're going to solidify a kind of an opinion that is burgeoning. Okay. So um, also do like, what are both of your images when, when I say Loch Ness monster, like I'm curious to see if you have what, what image comes to mind. If you imagine them similarly to one another, perhaps, or not. Oh, yeah, so Nathan's showing us one. We're going to have to take have a picture. To, have to get a screenshot. Okay, I'm going to close my eyes so I don't get biased by the yeah. photo. <laughs> um, so what I imagine is a kind of a long-necked, heavy-set, dinosaurish, aquatic dinosaurish kind of thing with like a long tail and fin-like objects. That's that's what I imagine. Okay, and Nathan, yours is similar? Yeah, same thing. Uh Technically, uh, what Lee is describing and the way I imagine Loch Ness Monster is something similar to a plesiosaur, 
which is okay. a kind of extinct Leave reptile. Leave it to Nathan to the, have the technical. That, that lasted from the Jurassic period all the way to the Cretaceous. But the question <laughs> is, did it maybe survive the Cretaceous into modern day? Right. Okay, so first of all, I want to give props to a book that I borrowed heavily from, which, which Lee, I think you mentioned in your um, Bigfoot podcast too, the Abominable Science book by Loxton Farrow, uh, Origins of the Yeti, Nessie, and Other Famous Cryptids. They have a great chap. They have great chapters on all sorts of cryptids, and I borrowed okay. heavily on the one um, about the Loch Ness monster. I'm not even sure I know where to begin. I guess I'll start with the idea or stories about sea monsters or lake monsters, and kind of how far those things go back. Stories about those sea monsters, lake monsters, they stretch back quite far, like to our first sailors. There's stories of water monsters and cultures around the world and Japan, Sweden, Ireland, um, indigenous peoples of America, the Vikings. There's all, there's sea serpents, the idea of sea serpents kind of running throughout different stories and different tales. So the notion of a sea monster is kind of a figure that's been around for a long time. When we move to the 20th and 21st century and this interest in monsters similar to Loch Ness Monster, we see they're more sort of landlocked cousins, I guess you could say, which would be a, a figure similar to the Loch Ness Monster that you've described. What Loxton and Prothero describe as a, quote, canonical first recorded sighting actually goes quite far back. It was written in the seventh century in this book called The Life of St. Columba, and it was written by, I don't exactly know how to say this name, name. it's Adomnan, but the A has a little, the second A has a little accent on it. So I'm not exactly sure. And again, this is supposedly the first kind of sighting. So Columbia or Columba was an Irish monk who in uh, 536 traveled to Scotland as a missionary and essentially trying to spread Christianity to Scotland. And this Adamnan uh, was a biographer writing like a hundred years later about Columba. And he told this story about Columba, uh, this Irish monk seeing a water beast by the river Ness, Ness while he was in Scotland trying to spread Christianity. Columba's by this river's edge. They see some, uh, there's reports that some terrible beast has killed a swimmer. And then there's, or, as the story goes, um, the beast is kind of pursuing uh, someone that's out in the water. And Columba, this holy man, um, essentially draws the sign of the cross and invokes the name of God. And by doing this, the beast ends up kind of um, retreating back into the water at this moment of, you know, holiness that this that Columba invokes. And this is recorded as happening in the River Ness, which I assume leads into Loch Ness. Right. And unfortunately, this story probably never actually happened. Okay, so Don Nunn wrote this biography about 100 years after Columba had died already. And so it was based on like a lot of hearsay. And it was also written at a time when sort of the legend of St. Columba had already been around and existed. And he was sort of this larger than life figure. And so this biographer was drawing on like folklore, third and fourth hand testimony, like traveler's tales. There's this great description in this Loxton book where they say, it just seemed like a Domnan was just throwing this stuff together and didn't even have any chronological order. So they say, he says, each story simply begins, quote, at another time, 
quote, or on another day. Like Later that no, same day. Yeah, there was absolutely no sense of when anything happened. Well, um, and at that time, like that chronicler wouldn't have been trying to create like an actual historical account. It would have been more to contribute to the myth-making of this, of this figure. Totally, and, and that's exactly what was happening. And surely there must have been other, like this one happened near Loch Ness, but there must have been other stories that came out of that time of people fighting dragons and sea serpents and things like that. Absolutely, like um, especially of around saints, there was a lot of sort of magic and monsters and these kind of stories about supernatural forces and these saints like Columba, like, fighting these demons and uh what are some other descriptions oh well he's said to have turned water into wine as Ooh. well yeah he raised the dead oh. um i feel like you lead you form. lead with that one if you raise the dead <laughs> like you don't even have to fight <laughs> right. a dragon at that point no you really don't um so it sort of fits with this whole uh genre of of magic and monsters and uh the sort of calming of them by these holy people and so it really fits. It's it's almost like kind of a form of religious propaganda, like you said, Nathan. It's kind of trying to build up the the personas of these these holy figures as being kind of larger than life. But regardless of that, it's still sort of showcased as a kind of first recorded Nessie sighting in a way. But um, it seems like it's it's, and I know I'm I'm attacking my own beloved creature here, but it seems sort of like cherry picking to choose that story as evidence for Loch Ness when we have St. George versus the dragon, when we have so many other versions of that that don't take place anywhere close to Loch Ness. Like, it just seems like a common archetype fighting some kind of metaphorical or mythical dragon. Totally. And there's other sort of supernatural creatures in Scottish folklore as well. Um, Other examples of descriptions in, like, the 19th century, uh, other monsters uh, with all sorts of names that I cannot pronounce. Uh, at all, so I'm not even going to try. Elena, there's a couple of things that emerged out of what you were saying that I wanted to just dwell on for a second. I find this, what you're talking about in terms of the first recorded account of the monster really interesting for a couple of reasons. One, is, as, as Nathan already touched on, is this question of truth between the ancient world and the modern world, where it wasn't that there wasn't a notion of truth back in the ancient world, but it was different. It was um, a more allegorical and metaphorical kind of truth, like fighting a monster. It wasn't as though this was a historical or meant to be read as a historical account of an actual beast, but it could be a metaphorical um, description, as Nathan was saying earlier, of somebody's spiritual greatness or ability to overcome adversity and, and that kind of stuff. I was thinking while you were talking, I was thinking about this relationship with technology that Arthur C. Clarke, the science fiction writer, noted. He said about technology, he said any, any sufficiently advanced technology will seem like magic to those who don't understand it. And I was wondering, so Colombo is yeah. not from Scotland, right? Mm-hmm. And he enters this new land. Could we sort of reformulate Arthur C. Clarke's insight into saying something about just generally when we're not familiar with things, it appears quite strange to us. Like any sufficiently bizarre animal will appear like a monster to those who have not experienced it. I mean, what would be my experience, you know, I don't know, of an elephant or a giant spider if, if I come from a country where I've never seen this? So could the origin of the account 
maybe actually have a kernel of truth than be just some kind of like, I don't know, weird Scottish fish that uh, this this monk had never seen before. And then this gets woven into this hagiography of the life of a saint and about his greatness and and all of that. Does 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 this seem plausible to either of you, or have I just gone down some dark alley here? Yeah, no, that sounds absolutely fair. It's this notion of you know what you don't understand is scary. I mean, think of. You can probably find any amount of videos on YouTube of a, a little kid for the first time seeing some weird thing they've never seen before and being scared of it, or you know what yeah. I mean? Because if you don't have a concept of something, it can be scary if you don't if you don't know how to even process what you're what you're seeing. And like you said, add on top of that the layering of this this legendary story they're trying to tell and probably embellishing and really trying to enhance the kind of power of this saintly figure. Uh, so you combine those two things, and that that makes a lot of sense. That's super interesting to have found such an early reference. I had no idea. I mean, I really thought like the Loch Ness would have been like the first sighting would have been in the 1800s, and then there would have been some blurry photograph. So I'm really surprised that there's such an early account for the Loch Ness monster. But given these problems with ancient approaches to truth versus scientific approaches to truth and just the fact that you know it's a long time ago and it's a legend are there more up-to-date versions are there more like something in the 20th century where there have been sightings by people who might interpret truth more closely to the way i would there are but just quickly since you mentioned the 1800s there are some examples of of sightings um of beasts in on, on different kinds of islands and things as well. So let me just quickly go to maybe one story from the 1800s. So 1852, um, there was an armed mob that was prepared to battle this sea serpent in Loch Ness. So people were getting like whatever they could find in terms of weapons. There, the men were armed with hatchets, uh, young lads with uh, scythes, I think is that how, that's how you say mm -hmm. it? I think women, so. Yeah, women even had pitchforks. They were ready to battle this uh, this mysterious monster, um, these whole crowds of, together. And so this was reported in the Inverness Courier in 1852. But really, I forget what it, honestly, I can't even remember what it ended up being in the end. They probably didn't know. It just built up this mass hysteria, like this moment of mass panic when they were all sort of probably seeing, just buying into whatever they thought they were seeing, like the Battle of Los Angeles, right? Mm -hmm. People were shooting into the air because they're told that something is up there, right? Um, but let me get to some of the more modern day stories. Now, these are going to be based on sightings, and then we'll get into things like photographs and even a film. So it slowly sort of builds to this notion of having some sort of evidence. But as I've been alluding to, since the beginning of this, even though I hate disappointing you, Nathan, is that it's sort of the appearance of evidence which can be explained in different ways or, or their hoaxes or misidentification errors, um, probably about 90% 90, 90 of them. So just prepare yourself mentally already, Nathan. Okay, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. My hopes haven't been crushed yet. I'll let okay. you know the exact moment that my hopes are crushed. <laughs> okay, good. Okay, this is good. So there is this, uh, so I'll bring it, maybe to, we'll start at 1930. Uh, this is considered to be maybe the first modern 
Loch Ness monster case. It was written about in uh, the Northern Chronicle. And if you, if you want to look it up, it's, um, it, it's often referred to as the three young anglers. So they were fishing for trout in, on Loch Ness and they saw this sort of great uh, commotion as they described it in the water with water spraying everywhere. And then whatever it was in the water started coming towards them and it caused this huge wave. They described it as about two and a half feet. There was all this wriggling motion. The water was, you know, violently upheaved. They thought it for sure could not have been a fish. They were like, there's no way this could have been a salmon. Like we know fish were fishers. And so this again is, is said to be sort of the first modern recording of, uh, of a sighting. And it's interesting because it's the first sighting to use the term monster in relation to Loch Ness. So before it might've been, you know, serpent or whatever other description, <clears throat> this notion of a monster started to kind of enter the popular myth around this, these sightings. This story in 1930 didn't really ignite much popular interest in the legend, surprisingly, but there was a, a person, a reporter named Alex Campbell, who it sort of stuck with. Now, in 1933, Campbell heard from some other people about a reporting. They were named Aldi and John McKay. They spotted something in the water as well along the shore of Loch Ness. And so Campbell wrote a story for the Inverness Courier and ran it under the headline, a quote, strange spectacle on Loch Ness. What was it? Trying to sort of spark some, some interest. This story was quite sensational. And in fact, the people who, the McKays, who had actually cited this thing that they didn't know what it was, kind of walked back his description. Like McKay was really sensationalizing and, sensationalizing and playing it up um, and exaggerating it. So even the people who did the sighting or had the sighting themselves were not really necessarily on board with how it was reported. But Campbell, this reporter, was also quick to kind of tie it to this previous sighting of these two, of these three young anglers. So he was kind of trying to deliberately connect these two cases as part of, as part of building this kind of myth. And apparently he even used the most recent description to kind of revise the earlier story of those three young anglers. So the story was sort of starting to build a bit in a bit of coherence, but only through kind of revision rather than actual experience or truthfulness. If I hear a cluster of sightings around something, I, I and I'm I'm suspicious about what it is. I, I wonder whether it there isn't a kind of a psychological element to it where people start to see what they're, you know, what because of the narratives around it, people are starting to see something. But I also am curious about the possibility of misidentification in the sense of maybe there, so this is my question, is there something chemically different about that body of water that would generate some kind of weird natural phenomenon like bubbling water occasionally? Like I'm thinking, and I don't really know anything about this stuff, but like buildup of methane. So referring to what you said specifically, there's no chemical thing going on there. There are a lot of fish there. So in fact, this description that McKay um, had of, of his sighting, uh, a local fisherman was like, I've seen this a hundred times and it's a bunch of salmon, like 
just in a really lively mood. Like this happens all the time. This is nothing special. Um, there is, because of the, I guess, the narrowness of it as well, the way the waves work there can be different. So let's say a water boat goes by and causes a wave. When it hits the edge of the lock and then comes back, there's a point where two waves kind of cross and can create an extra, you know, special kind of super wave or something that will look a little more violent than just a regular wave kind of going in the, in the water. So there's some phenomena there that are happening that are unique because of the shape of it. Uh, but there's nothing sort of chemical going on. It's more, it's more really kind of trying to understand what creatures actually do inhabit there or can pass through there. Uh, which are many, like seals, otters, even dolphins. There's all sorts of things that, that can cross through. And a lot of these descriptions and retrospects, like the size of it, uh, many people have said, oh, yeah, that's probably two seals. Like you see two humps, those are probably two seals based on the size of description. But another thing that you said, which is very much a part of this Loch Ness phenomenon, is this notion of seeing what you're looking for. So for sure, especially, and, and what you'll see in these stories of Loch Ness too, it'll be like, one person who says they've seen it five times versus these fishermen who are here who have never made a claim of seeing this. Meanwhile, they basically live on that body of water, right? So absolutely, there's someone who will like be fascinated by the Loch Ness story and be like, I'm going to go find the Loch Ness monster. And then they go and they claim to have seen it five times, right? Because like you said, this sort of psychological phenomenon of, of, of seeing what you're looking for or finding what you're looking for. All right, so my hopes are definitely flagging at this point, uh, but I still, I, I hold on to a glimmer. I know we can never disprove something, or it's very difficult to disprove something conclusively, but just to play devil's advocate, what would, what would be the reason that a yet undiscovered sea creature doesn't live there? I mean, it's true, right? All the misidentifications might be... They might be misidentifications, or some of them might have actually seen something. It's and true. there might be seals, and there might be salmon, and there still might be something underneath. Yeah, there's never been any, though, like, evidence in terms of bones or anything found yeah. at the bottom that would, that would prove that there's some other kind of unique creature. And, and another I'm problem sorry, is the, the lake itself is not particularly old. The lake itself is only about 10,000 years old. Yeah, And so the idea that some creature from the Cretaceous period of like 60 million years ago could somehow have survived in that lake, it doesn't make sense because that lake was covered in ice for like a fairly long period of time during the Ice Age. Oh, I was wondering how big is this body of water? It's not particularly it wide. It's very deep. No, it's, it's 37 kilometers long. It's very, it's, it's long, it's deep, oh. and it's narrow. It's less than two miles in width. Hmm. When you asked earlier, Elena, if I believed in it, this has been one of the my skeptical moments with this, is that when we posit something existing in the ocean, it, the ocean is huge. I mean, it's just so big that I could really imagine there's a lot of stuff in there that we haven't found. Totally. But even, and, and then that was, the, that was the point about Bigfoot, too, is the claim is that these, there's like maybe a very small, tiny population uh, inhabiting you know, a huge swath of territory. So, you know, you might not run into it. What about this? Do we feel like, you know, if you have boats with sonars going through a passage of water that's no wider than two miles, wouldn't we, like, be able to corner it or just get at it? 
Totally. Like, so as, um, as Nathan was saying, it's not hospitable to do these, like this plesiosaur theory that we're saying, um, or that's one of the theories about what it could be. So the lock is fresh water, which plesiosaurs were unsuited for. They were trop- They were actually tropical animals. Any kind of dredging or submarines, any searches that have been done, haven't found any bones there. They would have needed more food than you could actually get in something like a small little lock. And they were also air breathers. So you would have seen them on land at some point. They would not have just been living in the water. So there's all sorts of reasons that that theory is pretty easily disproved. My hope is now (laughs) hanging on by a thread. (laughs) And that thread continues to be that one photograph. I know. All right, right, let's go to that photograph. Okay, it gets worse, Nathan. Oh. Yeah. So the surgeon's photo that you're describing too. So um, on April 21st, 1934, the Daily Mail published this new at the time photograph of the Loch Ness Monster that was taken by uh, someone named Robert Kenneth Wilson. And he was a doctor. And uh, so again, it's referred to as the surgeon's photograph. And it's one of the most, maybe the most famous image ever produced of the Loch Ness Monster. Now, there's a lot of critics of the photo, I must say. And I mean, I mean, I have to, I'm sorry to break it to you, Nathan, but the photo was was a total hoax. Oh, there they go. There, there are a lot of examples of hoaxes in terms of the Loch Ness Monster. People like covering a bay of hail in a tarp that kind of looks dark and putting it in the water and floating it around and taking photos. And so the surgeon's photo was actually just a hoax by this family called the Weatherall family who were involved in a previous hoax as well. And where they, and so, but they created this one using a small model monster that they built around a toy submarine and then put in the water. And what Ian Weatherall actually confessed in 1975 that it was, it was a hoax. Um, but even though this confession is around that it's a hoax, this image has still remained this kind of really powerful pseudo evidence for the existence of the Loch Ness monster it, because it really captures public imagination. Like when you see photos like this, especially if you're primed to see the lo- a Loch Ness monster, then when you see this photo, you think you're seeing a Loch Ness monster. This is where, okay, this is actually the moment. So I've, I've confessed to you already, and I hope that this first confession will make it into the podcast, but the second confession hopefully will, that this was pretty painstaking for me to investigate. Right. I need both of you to promise me that you will never make me look into a cryptid again. <laughs> okay. What is it about looking into a cryptid that's so difficult? I mean, Lee I and I have both both been through this at this point because, of course, I did the Mothman, <laughs> which I think just about ruined me. And then yeah. Lee became obsessed with Sasquatch to the point of... Which yeah. I never spending, thought would happen. Yeah, and he, to the point where he spent quite a bit of time just focusing on the gluteus maximus of the Sasquatch. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what it was. I mean, there's something about Bigfoot, the notion of Bigfoot, that is kind of adorable. I mean, Mothman brings up all sorts of existential questions, which is interesting to me. But so Loch Ness was not to me, I have to say, until this moment, until I discovered this connection that I'm about to tell you about. So do either of you, can either of you recall a famous movie that would have come out in 1933? 
a movie from 1933. Uh, it opened in London, April 10th, 1933, caused a big stir and would have heightened War of the Worlds? Monster Mania. King Kong. King Kong. Ah, do either of you remember the water monster scene? Oh, of course. Oh, yes. Oh, uh, this is a problem that we often have where there's something in pop culture that's big and then it starts to leach its way into what people see the how people see the world. Exactly. Oh, this, I never made that connection before. This, yeah, so this is the moment when I read that I was like, "Oh, I see what's going on here." And this then it was fun for me because it was also this cultural studies kind of element kicking in. So the water monster scene, I looked it up because I, I didn't remember it. But well, can you describe it, Nathan? Do you remember it a little bit? Yeah, basically, like a giant plesiosaur head comes out of the water and starts attacking them. Are, are they in like a rowboat? Yeah, they're on the shore at first. I think some of them end up in the water yeah. fighting him. As well. Yeah, but basically a giant head comes out of the water on a big neck and it starts to attack them. And it's claymation. So it's awesome. Yes. And then what happens, too, is they're all retreating to shore, and then the plesiosaur follows them because it's, it also has feet, although you can't actually see the feet. but it's Or you can see the legs, but not the feet. And so it's like then pursuing them, and at a certain point even like picks up a guy out of a tree and sort of swings him around like a rag doll and tosses him around. If you watch this scene and then you read some of the accounts that then come out about Loch Ness after this, they almost match it to the T. Of course. So one specific one is was by George Spicer that came out in on August fourth, and he said he spotted this creature. And again, his description matches it like almost perfectly. So he says, "I saw the nearest approach to a dragon or prehistoric animal that I've ever seen in my life." It crossed my road about 50 yards ahead and appeared to be carrying a small lamb or animal of some kind. It seemed to have a long neck, which moved up and down in the manner of a scenic railway, and the body was fairly big with a high back. So it even describes, like, it has the description of picking up a person. And when again, when you watch the King Kong scene, it looks like this person is just kind of an animal in this plesiosaur's mouth that is kind of tossing around. And so there's all sorts of, I think there's even some more connections that we can that we can draw. So the description of the body matches uh, the report for, or the story the scene from King Kong. So he's essentially kind of recreating this scene in his description of seeing the Loch Ness monster. I mean, this is a problem that we encounter all the time when we're looking into something like an alien abduction. So many alien mm -hmm. abduction stories mirror so closely some sort of classic pop culture representations of alien abductions because those pop culture representations can work their way into the cultural zeitgeist. I never made that King Kong. Yeah, that makes perfect sense, unfortunately yeah, for me. I know, unfortunately for you. I think, um, I think that was the I moment just then. That was the moment yeah. when my hope died. So we'll put yeah. in a little sound effect right here yeah. to represent my dying hopes. It was kind of interesting, though, because in your face, it was like the moment of connection, but then the moment of disappointment, like immediately thereafter. Well, because it's still a bit of a rush to get closer to the truth. Even when the truth oh. isn't what we want, getting closer to the truth is still kind of interesting to me. There's some horrible uh, summary there of the life of the researcher, you know, both, both joy and disappointment at the very same moment. Totally. Um, so just as you mentioned, Nathan, it's this kind of feedback loop that you describe. And so this is what um, Loxon and Prothero, too, argue in their chapter on the Loch Ness, is that it's this feedback loop between pop culture 
uh, news reports and this kind of paranormal belief that are kind of feeding each other. So there's King Kong, The Lost World had also come out, I think, in 1925. So there was these, these monsters kind of circulating in pop culture that were kind of feeding public interest and sort of creating this expectation in a way of what they might see in real life based on what they're seeing in popular fiction. There is the first feature film that came out shortly after that as well called The Secret of the Lock. And uh, it hit theaters less than a year after the Spicer sighting, which again, so closely recreated the scene from King Kong as well. Uh, and then after the Spicer sighting too, it sort of sparked a whole new series of reports pouring in of people claiming to have seen the Loch Ness Monster. And so then of course, news media pops on board you have uh, the Scottish Travel Agency also really kind of using the publicity to then try and drive tourism to the to the area. And in fact, they were they had to deny that they had invented the monster at a certain point for the sake of publicity because they were getting claims of that. In fact, even uh, Joseph Goebbels, the minister of propaganda in Nazi Germany, he argued that Nessie was a hoax that that, that British tourism agencies had created. I did not get... expect Goebbels to come into this episode. No, I knew, no. You, didn't, you, knew you would no, be we, excited we, about we, that. We approached the end of the episode agreeing with Goebbels. I'm not comfortable yes. with that. This was, no. this was yes. not where I'd wanted to go yeah. today. No, we're not, not agreeing. not agreeing because he thought that, that they had created it as a pure hoax. But, you know, it was individuals involved. It was pop culture combining. It was news media reports. And then it seemed like the tourism board just kind of jumped on board. I think actually yeah. this is a really interesting example of how the, this idea that something has to be a conspiracy. Oh, there's somebody behind this. Not necessarily. It can have, mm. it, it, it can still emerge organically through social context and, and history. Like it, it, sure they might have taken advantage of this to bring in some tourism dollars, but that didn't mean that they caused the monster. Mm-hmm. Totally. One thing that I've always wondered about with the Loch Ness is reproduction, right? Because if the, the the best theory seems to be something, if if, if it's a real thing, that there would be uh, some some species left over from the dinosaurs, but there would have to be more than one. Yeah, there'd have to be a breeding population, right? Which so would mean, and this is something that Len be... has talked about. There would have to be a large supply of food to maintain animals that yes. big and a breeding population of them. Yeah. So you, we shouldn't just be looking for one, right? We should have been looking for a population. Yeah, because yeah, the idea unless that there could be the one, one right? unless it's one very old, but that's that goes outside of then we're into the supernatural. There's a few other sort of modern sightings that that I can describe. So there's the Lachlan Stewart photograph. And this was in the 1950s. So World War II, during World War II, that sort of sightings fell off. People were busy, obviously, with other things. This was not at the top of people's mind. Um, But in the 1950s, interest sort of began to revive. And there was this new kind of interest in Renaissance. And there was this photo taken by Lachlan Stewart. And it's also very influential, similar to the surgeon's photograph that we talked about before. So July 14th, 1951, he got up to milk his cow. He spotted something strange out his window. 
shouted for people in his house to come watch. He grabbed his camera and ran down to the lock and he watched uh, three humps and quote, a thin long neck and a head about the size and shape of the sheep's head. The head and neck kept bobbing down into the water. And it became a very famous photo, but it is also a hoax, unfortunately. So um, it was, I know, right? So in reality, it was just three partly submerged bales of hay that he'd, that he'd covered in like a tarp. That isn't just so, a hoax. That's a pretty half-assed hoax. You know, now there is film, apparent film footage, the Tim Dinsdale film, which is uh, considered to be kind of equivalent to the, um, the, what's the Bigfoot film? Do we remember? Was that Bob Gimlin maybe? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Gimlin and, oh. I've forgotten the full name of it. It's two dudes. Um, so it's kind of equivalent to that in terms of its its importance in in sighting. So this was shot in 1960, and it kind of you can see this indistinct blob kind of moving over the surface of the lake from far away. So Dinsdale was an engineer, and he apparently developed a bit of an obsession with Nessie after he read an article about the Loch Ness Monster in 1959. And so he was like, that's it. I'm going to go there and I'm going to find it. I'm going to find Nessie and I'm going to film Nessie. And so there's a few different, I think there were three separate sightings that he claimed to have had. And I think two of them, you can already prove right off the bat, were just misidentification errors. Like it's been, people have looked at it and it's clearly something else. But the last remaining sighting, he really felt like he had captured some proof of the existence of the Loch Ness Monster. And he was really hoping that science would agree. But science did not agree. Science does not agree with any of these uh, sightings that are claimed to have been had. So... In fact, it says the Loxon and um, Prothero in their book, they, they say that scientists were just kind of indifferent about the sighting. It did not spark any real um, interest there. But television audiences were really fascinated by it. Sure. So they really picked up on it. He was on TV, even uh, in Chicago, in the States, they were covering it. He got a book deal. So he had this real, it was like a real real career launcher for him. And he became this kind of celebrity. I think he was even on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson at some point in the, in the 70s. Now, this is kind of a funny a conclusion um, about this one. So the Joint Air Reconnaissance Intelligence Center, I believe that's who it was in the States. So the scientific organization, they tried to look into this Dinsdale film to, to analyze it. And they said they had two very different possible conclusions. The Dinsdale blog was either consistent with a monster or a boat. <laughs> but there's so, a, but, I feel like there's a lot of space in between monster and boat. I know, but apparently those are like the two directions you can go in with their conclusion, which is not very helpful at all. If I may... If, if yeah. we have the two possibilities that something was either a monster or a boat, as much as it pains me to say, I think probably a boat. Yeah, I was, I was going to mention the Occam's Razor thing here too. It's, it's, yeah. This is the what's more likely game, right? Like, is it something that we've never seen before would upend a lot of what we know to be true or a boat? Yeah, like, oh, so, I just saw something in the bathroom. It was maybe Elvis 
or maybe my <laughs> reflection in the mirror. Yeah, right. I mean, right. who's to say? And apparently, um, well, because part of because of these sightings and the the potential of it being something like just a boat, they even started to, tr- to try and record boats coming through the lock, just so that if they were timed, if they happened to coincide with sightings, then it could easily be disproven to say, oh no, a boat actually came through at that point, and then it might have created those standing waves that I described before, where at a certain point two waves cross and create sort of more commotion. So that ends up being one of the common explanations for what it could have been. Let's go through a few, let me go through a few more. So as I said earlier, probably about 90% of reports of a lot of Nessie can be explained away as errors or mistakes or hoaxes or some sort of misidentification. And there's also, there's almost like, there's so many things that it could be rather than a monster. Like cormorants, it could be a kind of bird, it can be splashing fish, it could be otters, it could be seals, it could be logs, it could be waves, it could be boats. Like, there's so many other explanations that make so much more sense and have some sort of basis or foundation. Because we have physical evidence for the existence of all of those things. Exactly. And so we don't have to come up with a new entity to explain it if we already have entities that explain it. Whereas, unfortunately, we have no physical evidence in the form of, you mentioned bones, or just any kind of random DNA floating around the lake, which we can't identify as being something that we already know exists. Right. And so the conclusion that I, that I want to quote in a way from this abominable science book, or the way they describe it, I really like, he just says, um, it's a giant monster that many people see, but that cannot ever be detected by science which I just think puts it so well, because again, it's, you know, it's not that people, I mean, people are seeing what they think they see, but really there's no proof or evidence that it is what they think they're seeing. So ultimately you're going to say, no, my childhood hopes are crushed. I'm saying absolutely no dice. Okay. Well, I mean, I appreciate that. I appreciate the yeah. work you put into it. And I appreciate your honesty. So, yeah. Okay. All right. You know, it strikes me that, I I don't know how you both feel, but as Elena was narrating this, it strikes me that this is a cryptid myth from the era before the internet, where this worked better when I couldn't just Google Scotland and Loch Ness and Google the old images and do all of this like really quick research that in the 80s and early 90s would have been really hard. And this would have been some faraway, small little place where, you know, who knows? I mean, who's really going to go get themselves a plane ticket to go there? I feel like this has turned hokey since the internet in a way where not all conspiracies have in the same way or not all cryptids have. Again, like with the with the Bigfoot thing, I was almost like, yeah, I, you know, I can kind of, I mean, I don't think it's there, but I can kind of see it. This, I feel the internet has kind of spoiled it a bit. I feel yes, like it, it's hard for the Loch Ness monster to survive Google Earth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's like a it's something that works better as a legend that you can't actually investigate, but you can easily, but you can just circulate by word of mouth, and it yeah. can build and grow and get exaggerated and kind of be a little larger than life, versus being able to easily Google it and disprove something. Huh. So it's a real bummer, kind of a bummer. I'm, I feel bad for you, Nathan. I know your hopes and. Or a little crushed today. Yeah, uh, I'm used to it. 
But I'm just going to try to remember face when the moment you realized the King Kong connection, because it did look, you looked happy in that one second. Yeah. And I mean, in these days, even one second of happiness, still pretty good. Still pretty good. Well, come to the uncover up for your one second of happiness. That yeah. sounds about right. So this was originally we were going to do three cryptids and now we've done all three. But we're going to do a fourth one. Uh, Lena, you won't take the lead on this one. No. Uh, not because you didn't do a good job of Loch Ness, but because I mean, unless, you found it so aggravating. Celebrity, unless it's like related to Kurt Cobain or Marilyn Monroe or something like that, I don't want to do it. What about if it's Are related to Benjamin cryptids? Franklin? What's that? What if it's related to Benjamin Franklin? I don't know. Continue. Let me decide. Because as you know, for some reason that none of us understand, we have a ton of listeners in a place called Wayne, New Jersey. Right. I'm sure it's a fine place. Uh, so shout out to all the Waniacs out there who are listening. Uh, because we have so many New Jersey listeners, we've decided that we have to pursue the existence of the New Jersey devil. Right. And it, it's going to also get pretty weird and pretty strange, as all three of these have. I assume you've done a little bit of research already, which is why you know it gets weird and strange. Yeah, I've already started and I'm already perplexed. All right, okay. so then, <laughs> but at this point, maybe what have we learned from our cryptid hunts? Hmm. Okay, so what I learned from my cryptid hunt and also listening to both of yours is, so specifically with Bigfoot, I was surprised at my own prejudices and how much how much I dismissed without actually looking into it. And once I looked into it, how much that softened me to the possibilities of stranger things being out there than I thought. That's, a, that's actually a really hand, valuable thing to have learned. Yeah, it was, it was a, that's what made it so much fun. And it was also, it was fun because it wasn't challenging things that are not to be challenged in my worldview. <laughs> you know, if, if I, it was something challenging, but not too challenging, if that makes sense. The other thing, though, that I learned, and this is almost a counter to the first part, is how well some of our principles hold up, our critical thinking principles, our scientific thinking principles, you know, looking at cultural archetypes or cultural events like the King Kong film and how that starts to create a narrative that other stuff maps onto, using Occam's razor, thinking about, you know, things like I, a question I would never have asked before we began this, which came up, Alana, both in your cryptid hunt and mine, is the relationship between food resources and uh, the animal in question and how likely that animal is to exist in that area given the types of food it would need and the types of availability of that food and how that would be negotiated it gives us a lot of insight into whether that animal actually exists the way people have described it. I've found myself to be quite not surprised, but really validated in a lot of the approaches that we've been taking, which which make a lot of sense to me out of out of mysteries. And so I've I've felt both more open to mystery and yet more kind of confident that I can dispel ones that aren't real. What really stands out to me, and I think this fits with a lot of other conspiracies we've talked about or especially around UFOs or paranormal belief is just this is more, it's given me more, more insight again into the psychology of belief and the psychology of conspiracy and this kind of desire, how much your desire for something to exist can then kind of 
make it exist for you. Like this desire for something to be true and then you kind of fulfill it in what you see. So this kind of confirmation bias, or we talked about this before even with around, um, around aliens or flat earth and this idea that like there's some, it's kind of filling some other void or, or like creating some sort of um, meaning for people uh, in some way. And I did not describe that well, just now. Uh, no, <laughs> May old circle it. back. Nathan, you talk. And no, talk. It, it, Elena, I thought that was very coherent. Yeah, I think for me and my Mothman experience, the thing that it really reinforced is this idea that there are so many layers in between our experience and what reality is. Totally. That we, it's, it's very difficult for us to ever access anything that we could consider to be objective reality. And one of the, the thickest layers between us and reality is, I guess, the stories that we tell ourselves stories built up a layer between us and reality and filter everything we see. So it isn't often, it isn't a question of people deliberately lying or mm-hmm. of people deliberately misleading, but the, the, la- the layer of falsity is like, it's, it's not a conscious thing. It's, it's in perception. We are always being lied to by ourselves. By ourselves. Oh man, that's so deep. <laughs> it's true, as, as deep and, as the Loch Ness referring back to what Lisa said too it's like it's our job to then try and find those layers and like use things like critical thinking and asking important questions to actually determine the difference between your perception and the reality even when the reality is something we didn't want to be true oh Nathan head. Nathan's hanging his head Yeah. alright so um, now I think we have to do some uh, what's that? Plugs for emails. Oh, I really right. want Nathan to get that tattoo. Oh yeah, I haven't checked in a while. I mean, I won't be able to get the tattoo because not for not yeah, until sure. we're allowed to be within six feet of each other. Listen, listen, man. A, a deal's a deal. You're gonna have to do it yourself. Uh, you <laughs> can look up prison tattoos on YouTube. I already and have I'm sure one. There's a bit... <laughs> He's not even kidding. <laughs> But yes, if we get enough Instagram followers or if we get enough reviews on iTunes, I will be getting uh, our logo of the Flying Saucer tattooed on my right bicep. That is true and authentic and legitimate. Uh, During this time, when we're all so isolated, I've really appreciated hearing from listeners. And because I have so much more time on my hands now, I'm doing a better job at writing back. So yeah, so please write to us because we really enjoy hearing from everybody. And the reviews on iTunes are probably a bit tedious to do, but the reason we keep asking for them is because it makes us and our show more easy to find for other people who are interested in conspiracies. So the fewer people that review us, the further down we are in the list when you type in conspiracies. And not to name any names, but some of the shows that come up first are ones that really uncritically plug conspiracy theories without you know questioning them. Ooh, and I think Lee's starting really, a flame war with other podcasts. I'd like to get I'd like to get a bit ahead of them sometimes. <laughs> so review us for the good of humanity and all knowledge. Yeah, no. <laughs> for the good of humanity and all knowledge, that's got to be the ending. Uh, emails too, podcasts. Oh yeah, I didn't say what the email address was. Yeah, so uh, uh, Elena, what's our email address? I never remember our email. It's like. I never remember it. I literally never knew. This is why I threw it to you because I thought that this would be your chance to say yeah, it. So it's to the Instagram. <laughs> Nathan, what's our email address? Podcast at the uncoverup 
com. Hey, hey, Nathan. Uh, uh, sorry, Elena. What's our email address? Podcast at theuncoverup.com. That's the only time I'll ever say it. See, now you can use it. Yeah, we, we can just it. loop that around for future use. <laughs> All, right, All right. Stay safe. You too. Hi, right. guys. See you, see you for the New Jersey Devil. Is the concept of monster necessarily supernatural? Well, yeah, because something like a colossal squid, which is horrifying and monstrous, still belongs to the animal kingdom. Yeah. But is it still a monster? Or does a monster, does, is there something supernatural about a monster? Like if I call something a monster, does that entail necessarily that there is magic, alien, something something? I think it would have to be involved. outside of our understanding of like the Komodo dragon is like mm. huge and scary and poisonous and murders people occasionally, but it still fits within, you know, the animal kingdom and, it, and we don't consider it a monster. Yeah. So would a, a monster would either have to be too far outside of our understanding of something that exists or, or created in some way that we don't understand? I don't know, some sort of magical element or supernatural element? It would almost have to be singular to be a monster. Okay. So it's not then about my own emotional relationship to it or my own emotional reaction. You know, I see something terrifying. Well, well, if that's the case, then a dog could be a monster. Mm. Well, yeah, that's the thing. Like, that's where I wonder, especially when we go to a pre-scientific discourse. I mean, from that perspective, Elena had a cat that we could consider a monster. Yeah, Yeah, most cats cats are monsters. No, this one was like... He is a monster, yeah. He was a cryptid, um, basically. Actually, if he was in the water at at Loch Ness, he, could, <laughs> he was like a big gray. Oh, yeah, for sure. He's been a sighting, for sure.